0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Gospel Community Church. Uh, If I don't know you yet, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the honor, the privilege to get to preach this morning uh, we're in the last week of our Advent series, which I'll talk a little bit more about here in a second. Uh, but here, at, if you're new, or maybe not new, but this is good, a good thing to know, at GCC, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And so what we mean by that is that we believe the Bible is the collection of books that were written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what we have in this book, in the Bible, are God's very words. We believe that because of this, These words are inerrant, meaning they don't have any error to them, and it means they're authoritative, meaning they they govern and, and dictate what we do with our lives because that's how God has communicated to us. And we would say that the entire Bible, it's a collection of a bunch of different books that tells one big story that all leads to Jesus. The whole Bible, all of it, is about Jesus, and it's really easy and obvious to see how that's true in the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—which tell the story of Jesus, and then the rest of the New Testament, which talk a lot about Jesus. But we would say as well that the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, and it does this in a few different ways. Sometimes Jesus is present in different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, A lot of times there's patterns that are given in the Old Testament that make us think about what Jesus is going to be like. And then there's times when Jesus is predicted. It's just explicitly said a Messiah is going to come. We're not necessarily given his name, but we know what he's going to be like. And we've been looking at one of these texts that predict the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament throughout Advent this year. And that's in Isaiah chapter 9. The book of Isaiah is a, a A book of prophecy written by the prophet Isaiah telling about a day when God is going to restore creation. He's going to bring people, his people back into a relationship with him. He's going to judge sin with righteousness and he's going to make all things new. And throughout this book, we're given glimpses of how he's going to do that. And we know specifically it's going to be through a person, through the Messiah. So that's what we've been doing. We're in week four of this Advent series and in this in this uh, passage that we're looking at, there are four names that are given to the promised Messiah. He promises that a child will be born, that a son will be given, and this, this person, this, this child, is going to reverse the curse of sin, save God's people, and bring about justice and righteousness in the world. And this, pro- this prophecy gives this promised one, the Messiah, these four names, and they reveal a lot about who he is and what he would come to do. And so we've looked so far at the wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and this morning we're going to be looking at the title Prince of Peace, as Ian mentioned earlier. So I'm going to read our text, it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses, we'll read verses 6 and 7 this morning, should be up there on the screen. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this season, this Advent season, where we uh, intentionally set aside time to remind ourselves of how you chose to rescue us from sin and save the world to do that through uh, your son, Jesus, becoming a man, being born in the form uh, of a baby, to grow up, to live a perfect life, and, and, and give that life up on the cross on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, and we thank you that this time of year we get to remember uh, that you humbled yourself to become one of us, to live in our sinful and broken world um, in order to restore us to the Father. Uh, this morning as we look at peace I'm sure all of us will be reminded of the areas of our life where we do not have peace and where there isn't peace in this world. And so, God, we look to you and you alone for the hope of peace and for a future where we will know nothing but peace. So in the meantime, God, help us to submit our lives to you, remind us of your goodness and grace and love as you showed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, and give us this Christmas season a real true sense and experience of peace, a peace that only you can provide but you speak through me that this time would bring glory to you and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on September 11th in 2009, Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, and he gave a speech that most people would consider an absolute train wreck. If you've ever listened to it, it's really bad. Uh, but it did provide the world with the crying Michael Jordan meme that you've probably seen before, and so we can be thankful for that. Uh, at the end of his speech, he said this line, said, the game of basketball has been everything to me, my refuge, my place that I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. See, for Michael Jordan, the game of basketball was where he went to find peace, whatever it is that he means by that. The problem is that when basketball came to an end for Jordan, that peace came to an end as well. And since his retirement, his life has been one of chasing that same sense of stability and peace that he had while playing, but never quite finding it. Several years later, in an Outside the Lines interview for ESPN, he's talking with the interviewer about uh, this internal competitiveness that he has and how difficult it's been for him since retirement to find outlets for that competitiveness. And so he talks about getting really good at a game on his iPad, uh, picking up Sudoku and word searches. He gambles, he golfs, he does all these kinds of things in in an attempt to satisfy that desire to compete and hopefully find the peace that he had when playing basketball. But none of these competitive endeavors are quite the same. So he says in this interview, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? The game of basketball was what gave him peace, but now that the game is over, where will we find his peace? And that's a question that I want to answer today and not just for Jordan. He probably will will never listen to this. But for all of us here this morning, where can we find peace? Where can we go for peace? I think it's a question worth answering because it's a question that I think we're all asking. We're all looking for it. Every single one of us is searching for peace. And maybe you're not looking for peace in basketball, but maybe you are in your career or your marriage, or in your children, or in your identity as a mother, or a father, or a friend. We look for peace in our body image, in our physical health, in our bank accounts, our financial stability, in what we know, or maybe how well liked or approved of we are in society. We're all looking to something or someone for peace because we all want peace. Now, we have to clarify and define what exactly is peace. What is this thing that Jordan sought after that we all want in our own life that we talk about so much? Oftentimes when we think about peace, we think about peace as the absence of conflict. We think about countries being at peace when they are not at war, or families are at peace when they're not arguing or having conflict within the home. But the biblical picture of peace is much more than just the absence of conflict. It's also the presence of harmony, unity, completeness, flourishing. So countries would be at peace, not simply if they just aren't at war, but when they're actually working together in harmony to bring about flourishing and prosperity for one another. Families wouldn't be at peace just simply when there aren't arguments around the dinner table, but when there are loving conversations that bring about unity and wholeness within the home. The biblical picture of peace is when nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Nothing is missing, and nothing is broken. Uh, my son Riggs, he's almost three, and he loves to do puzzles. Uh, for, since as like, really young, I mean, he is really young, but even younger, you know, uh, young, his young three years of life, he's loved doing puzzles. He's kind of a nerd. It's great. Uh, he's kind of a whiz at them. And he's also a kid, and his little brother doesn't help with this. And so all the puzzles we have, none of them have all the pieces in them. So... Oftentimes, Riggs will say, hey, Dad, can we do the barn puzzle or the bug puzzle? And I'll say, sure, buddy. And we take the puzzle out, and we, he, we work together, and we get it all put together, and then there's pieces missing. I don't know if you've ever done a puzzle, and at the end of it, there's pieces missing, drives me crazy, right? Like there's something, something wrong with that. And there's something wrong for him as well. Riggs is like, where are the other pieces? Like, dad, where's the other pieces? Go find the other pieces. And I'm like, you probably know where they are better than I do. Probably hidden in some corner or crack or crevice in your room somewhere. But there's something missing, right? When you complete a puzzle and it's not quite complete, a piece is missing. It's not whole. It's not complete. Another example, for several months now, my truck has not had a fuel gauge. Uh, it's annoying, uh, but it's a common problem with my make and model of truck. Uh, eventually, the fuel tank sensor goes bad, and in order to fix it, you got to replace the fuel pump, and I don't want to do that. And so mechanically, the truck runs fine, haven't had any issues, and I know about how many miles I can go before I need to fill up again. And I've only ran out of gas once. Uh but I think I've got it down now. I've, yeah, there's only been one time. But every time I get in my truck, the check engine light is on, and it dings at me. that A fuel sensor fail light is on. And so it's this constant reminder that something's not right. Something's broken in this vehicle. And my truck could be running fine, but any little, like, I hit a bump in the road or I hear a noise that weird, and I'm like, we're going off the road. It's all over because something is wrong, right? Something is broken. Something is missing. So peace is when nothing is missing, And nothing is broken. It's a a puzzle with all the pieces and a vehicle without any lights dinging at you or flashing at you on the dash. In each and every one of us, something is missing and something is broken. And it's usually more than just one thing. For all of us, there are a lot of things in our life that are missing and a lot of things that feel broken in our lives and in the world. The Bible talks about a lack of peace in three distinct areas. And these three areas that we're all very familiar with are where we lack peace. Are three areas that we know what it's like to have something missing or something broken. So the first area is maybe the most obvious and that's between people. Whether it's warring nations, conflict in families, marital strife, estranged children, political polarization, or Christmas light disputes with your neighbors, we all know what it's like for something to be missing or broken in various relationships we have with one another. The second area is between us and nature. And I don't mean in like some kind of weird way. I just mean that there are deadly pathogens, cancerous cells, degenerative diseases, and failing bodies that plague many of us. Not to mention uncontrollable forces of nature, such as tsunamis, earthquakes, wildfires, and hurricanes, which have all taken countless lives throughout human history. Our relationship with the world, with creation, with nature is broken. There's something missing. And the third area is peace within ourselves, one I know we're all familiar with, whether it's depression and anxiety, panic attacks or mental disorders, shame, guilt, fear, anger and grief and all the other things that go on within our souls that torment and damage us. Something is broken inside of us. Something is missing. We actually see these three areas uh, where we lack peace in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of mankind. After Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin, everything falls apart. And immediately, something is broken within them. They felt shame over their naked bodies and tried to cover themselves and hide from God. And then they started playing a blame game and pointing fingers at one another and the serpent and anyone but themselves saying, this is the reason that we ate the fruit. And then when God tells them the consequences for their sin, their consequences that include damaged relationships between Humanity and creation, pain in childbearing, pain in working the ground, difficult labor and toil, the consequences for their sin, the, the result of separation from God Himself is a lack of peace between each other, between them and nature, and between them and themselves. And every single human after Adam and Eve suffer the same consequences for our sin. Our relationships with one another, our relationships with nature, and our relationship with ourself, in all of those, something is missing and something is broken. And so like Michael Jordan, we look to anything and everything in order to provide the missing peace or to make us feel whole or make us feel complete, to provide the kind of stability and flourishing that we desperately long for as human beings, only to find that it never works. We're never satisfied. We're always restless, looking for peace in all wrong places. And this is because our lack of peace with others, with nature, and within ourselves is because ultimately we lack peace with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve severed their relationship with God because of their sin, and the consequences of that severed relationship is the lack of peace in every other aspect of life. And that same thing goes for us. Each and every one of us are born into sin, born enemies of God, born not at peace with our Creator. The relationship we were created for broken by our rebellion and selfishness. And so before we can have true peace with one another, before we can have any kind of peace with nature in God's world, and before we can have peace with ourselves, we have to first have peace with God. Trying to have peace in our life without first being at peace with God would be like trying to achieve financial freedom without ever paying off any of your debt. You can have a savings account, and you can invest in your 401k, and you can set up Uh, lucrative streams of passive income, but if you still have a debt that is owed, you will never truly be financially free. The debt will always loom over you and, and, and color everything else that you do financially. See, we have a debt with God and our attempts at freedom and peace in our lives without ever dealing with that debt will never satisfy and will always come up short. And so first, we need peace with God. And this isn't a peace that we can create or achieve on our own. We're the offending party. So God has to be the one to make peace with us. He has to be the one to pay the debt. And he does that in the Messiah. He does that in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And how he does that—it was revealed to us in part by this title of prince. And so I want to look at that now. When we think about a prince, often we think about the son of a king. And we should, that's what the word means. In Hebrew, this term here has, is a little more nuanced than that. So we get a few different connotations that help us kind of unpack what, Jesus, or what, what uh, Isaiah is, is explaining here. The term has connotations of chief or a chief representative of a commander and of a ruler. These connotations have implications about Jesus' relationship with peace and how it's available to us through him. So as the Prince of Peace, Jesus is its chief representative. He's the chief of peace, meaning it's not just that Jesus brings peace or makes peace. He does those things, but it's that he himself is the embodiment of peace. Jesus is peace. Or as Ephesians 2, 13 through 14 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is our peace. And so we must be united to him one with him in order to have peace. There is no possibility of peace outside of union With the Prince of Peace. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus also commands or proclaims peace. Jesus' message and mission was a message of peace. In that same Ephesians passage, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus begins his ministry, he's in a synagogue and he's handed a scroll of Isaiah. This is what it says in verse 17 of Luke chapter three. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty. Those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then verse 20, he he finishes reading this says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is saying that he is the one that was promised in Isaiah who would come to make peace, who would come to restore what is missing and broken. But look how this mission is described. It's a mission of proclamation. He's he's speaking, he's preaching, he's proclaiming good news, he's proclaiming liberty, he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, proclaiming peace, peace with each other, peace with God's world, peace with ourselves, and ultimately, all of that stemming from peace with God. So peace is only available to those who are united to the Prince of Peace, but peace is also only available to those who respond to the command of the Prince of Peace, who receive his proclamation of peace. Lastly, as the Prince of Peace, Jesus is also the ruler of peace. Or in other words, he has the power to make peace happen. So back to Ephesians 2, the verses we skipped over, verses 15 and 16. We we read earlier, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. In Colossians 1:19 and 20 it says this, for in him in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. So you notice the similarity between these two verses. Jesus is making peace, how is he doing it? Through the cross. And by his blood. See, on the cross, Jesus endured the lack of peace, the chaos and suffering caused by our sin, so that he could make peace between us and God. Peace is only available to those who are one with the Prince of Peace, who respond to the message of the Prince, and peace, uh, Prince of Peace, and trust in the sacrifice of the Prince of Peace. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus possesses the power to make peace, but it comes at a cost. Jesus was the most peaceful person to ever walk the earth. In his life, he united ethnic and political opponents, making peace between people. He calmed storms and healed sicknesses, making peace between people and nature. And he offered rest to weary souls, making peace with oneself possible. But in his death, he gave all of it up. In his final hours, Jesus was abandoned by his friends, arrested by his people, beaten and mocked by the Romans, And there was no peace between Jesus and other people. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in internal turmoil and agony, sweating blood as he prayed to the Father that this cup of God's wrath would pass. There was no peace within Jesus' own soul. And during his trial and on the cross, he experienced the physical pain and ultimately the physical death caused by the nails in his hands and feet, the thorns in his head, the rough wood on his back, the spear in his side, the slaps of the face, all physically painful things. There was no peace between Jesus and his creation. And finally, for a moment in time, there was no peace between the Father and the Son. As the wrath of God met the sin of the world in the flesh of Jesus, and the Father turned his face away. In that moment, on the cross, as Jesus hung lifeless, everything was missing and everything was broken. You see, though Jesus had the power to create peace by simply speaking, He laid it aside and willingly succumbed to the chaos and suffering and wrath caused by our sin so that you and I could have peace. As Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only when we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is peace then available in every other area of our life. When nothing is missing and nothing is broken between us and our creator, when that puzzle is complete, every other puzzle follows. We can forgive our enemies when we understand how much we've been forgiven by God. We can stare sickness and death and disaster in the face, knowing we will live forever in glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And our souls can truly rest because we know we have a loving father who cares for us, who takes care of our needs, and who works all things together for the good of those who love him. And of course, it's easy to say that. It's a little less easy to just have peace. And we live in this interesting state between Jesus's first advent that we're celebrating now at Christmas, this initial advent of peace, and his second advent, when Jesus returns, when he returns to make all things new and all new things. Theologians use uh, this phrase, the already not yet, to describe this tension we live in now as Christians. The kingdom of God has already come. And is alive and well right now as we speak. Jesus is king. But at the same time, it's not yet fully realized. We're already saved from our sin, justified in the eyes of God and counted righteous. But we're not yet delivered from our bodies of flesh that struggle with sin and temptation on a daily basis. We already, right now, have peace with God, others, nature, and ourselves. Because of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. Nothing is missing and nothing is broken if you are in Christ. But at the same time, we're not yet free of the chaos and suffering caused by our sin. There are still things missing and still things broken in our lives. And one day, this will not be the case. At Jesus' second advent, when he comes again, and we long for that day. But until that day comes, how do we experience the very real and very present peace that God offers? How do we have peace? in the already not yet state that we live in presently. Four points of application, how we can experience this peace that Jesus offers. First, to have and to experience peace, you must be rightly related to God. You will not have peace until you find it in the Prince of Peace. Any attempts at peace outside of Jesus will be shallow and temporary. And so if you want real, deep, lasting, eternal peace, then trust in the blood of the cross that makes peace. Respond to the gospel of peace with repentance and be united to the Prince of Peace by faith. Decide today to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. Let Jesus replace what is missing and restore what is broken in your life. No one or nothing else can. So first, if you want to experience peace, be rightly related to the God of peace. Second, If you are rightly related to the God of peace through Christ, then experience peace through prayer. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, when we pray, when we let our requests be made known to God, we're reminding ourselves of his goodness and his faithfulness. Asking for God to do something for you reminds you, consciously or subconsciously, that he can do something for you. And when we're reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness and power through prayer, we're reinforcing our trust in his sovereignty, and that leads to anxieties fading away. That leads to peace. This peace of God that we can't quite understand or comprehend or wrap our minds around will then guard our hearts. So we can experience peace through prayer. Third, we can experience peace through obedience. We continue in that Philippians 4 passage in verse 8. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So think about true, honorable, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy things but don't stop just thinking about them. Practice them. And the promise attached to our thinking and practicing of these things is that the God of peace will be with us. Romans 8, verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. As we go about our days, we have the decision to submit to the desires of our flesh and give in to temptation and sin, or submit to the spirit and choose holiness and obedience. And when we do the latter, the text says we experience life and peace. As our creator, God has laid out how we are to live. And as followers of Jesus, we submit all of our lives under his lordship. That means our sexuality. That means how we spend our money, how we speak, how we spend our time, how we interact with others. In everything, we seek to obey Jesus as king. Sometimes we don't experience peace because we're simply living in sin. And so turning from sin, repenting from it, and walking in obedience to Jesus as Lord is one way we can experience peace. This doesn't save us. Our obedience does not make us more right with God. Our obedience does not make God more pleased with us. We obey because those things are already true. And when we walk in the way that God has intended us to walk as his people, we experience peace. It's not easy, but it produces peace. And I think many of us would take peace over easy. So lastly, to experience peace, we forgive. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So, this list of things in Colossians 3 are relational things compassion, kindness, humility, patience, love, and forgiveness. And all these things come from a heart that is ruled by the peace of Christ. So, you are going to hurt others. You are going to be hurt by others. Sometimes in very serious and painful ways, and a lot of times in smaller, maybe less significant ways, but it's hurt nonetheless. And I'm not saying we ignore hurt. I'm not saying we ignore justice. I'm not saying we roll over and take abuse. What I am saying is that we have all hurt God in greater ways than we will ever hurt one another. But because of God's love for us and desire for peace, he's forgiven us our sins and trespasses. And so we ought to forgive others out of a heart ruled by the peace of Christ. I'll conclude with a story. It's a story of a prince. This prince ruled over a kingdom that had perfect peace. There's a kingdom where nothing was missing and nothing was broken. The people flourished and sought each other's good. And the prince ruled with perfect love and justice. Until one day a messenger came and reported to the prince that a thief had stolen some goods in the market. That prince being just told the messenger to go find the thief, bring them to the courts. The penalty for their crime would be 10 lashes. The messenger goes out and tries to find the thief only to return shortly later with bad news. Not only have they not found the thief, but the thief continues to steal. More goods, money, and more places. Their crimes have increased in severity. And not only is the thief continuing to steal, but the people in the kingdom are getting restless. They're not trusting one another. Conflict is starting to break out. The actions of one individual are starting to impact the entirety of the kingdom. So the, pre, the prince then commands the, the messenger to go find the thief and doubles the penalty to 20 lashes. After a short time, the messenger returns with more bad news. The thief still hasn't been caught. Crime continues, and civil unrest is getting more and more extreme. This once peaceful kingdom is descending into chaos because of the actions of the thief. The prince doubles the penalty again to 40 lashes, and the messenger shudders as he leaves the prince's court, knowing that no one can survive that many blows. The penalty becomes death. A short time later, the messenger returns, this time very sheepish and timid, because he informs the prince that they have found the thief. But the thief is none other than the prince's own mother. The thief finally caught. People gather in the court to see justice prevail so that peace can be restored to their kingdom. And everyone wonders, what is this prince going to do? The penalty for the crimes has been established, but he wouldn't kill his own mother, would he? The prince commands the guards to tie his mother to the post and prepare to deliver the blows that will surely lead to her death. But in the moment before the first blow is delivered, he cries, stop, removes his own coat, exposing his bare back, walks over to his mother, wraps his arms around her and says, now deliver the blows. I'm going to read Isaiah 9, 6 again, where we started. It says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he establishes and upholds this kingdom talked about in Isaiah with justice and righteousness. And he makes peace available, an unending, unending eternal peace. But he does this by standing between us and the judgment we deserve for bringing chaos and suffering into his good world because of our sin. Michael Jordan isn't the only one trying to replace what is missing and fix what is broken in his heart. It's a universal human condition. And our lives will continue to have things missing and broken until we are united to the Prince of Peace, who was born in a manger on Christmas morning, proving God faithful to his promises. He preached the gospel of peace, lived a life of peace, and yet gave up peace on the cross in order to make peace through the shedding of his blood. And now peace with God is available to all who would trust in his sacrifice, respond to his message, and unite themselves to Jesus Christ, the Prince of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to enter into our world of chaos and suffering because of our sin. Jesus, thank you for living a perfect life, life of peace, and ultimately giving that up and laying it down on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for standing between us and the judgment we deserve so that we can have peace with God. And God, I pray that the peace that we have with you would extend to all other areas of our life and we would experience here and now this beautiful, wonderful, everlasting peace that you have secured for us through the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.